Scripture today comes from Galatians 3, 23 to 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray. Father, thank you for this text that we get to dwell in this morning for these minutes that we will be looking at it. And Lord, we thank you for your grace toward us in Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for welcoming us into your family. Thank you for filling us with purpose and passion to serve you in this life. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that we have inherited that we'll look at today in this text. Lord, thank you for your presence with us. Uh, We pray that we would live lives that glorify you because of what we see here today and that you would empower us to do so by your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I add my welcome to Dave's welcome. My name is Brett, and I am part of the team here. It's my joy to be opening Galatians three twenty three to 29 with you. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, well, maybe your Bible is different than mine. I got to turn a page. We turned a page in Galatians. We've, we've been on the same page, uh, well, the two pages, for a very long time. And so this is week 15 of our study. We've got to turn a page. I don't know. I think that's fun. We, we're making progress. We're moving through. We are covering ground. We are turning pages as we continue our study in Galatians today. Uh, so yeah, we are into Galatians chapter 3, finishing off Galatians 3 this morning. Uh, how you guys doing okay? You all right? It's cold out there, right? It's cold. It's cute in Vancouver when it tries to snow. <clears throat> Being Albertan, I think it's cute. Uh, I got a text this morning from my mom. She sent me a, a picture of their thermometer at their house in my hometown. It's minus 29. Uh, that's without the wind chill. Some of you from Vancouver never heard of the wind chill or felt the wind chill. The wind chill is when it's minus 29 and it blows even a little bit and then you die. That's what happens. <laughs> it's that cold. So it's cute. I was walking around outside with my short sleeve shirt taking pictures of the snow and um, sending it to my family in Alberta. They make fun of us, just so you know, when we get weather advisories for minus two and a little bit of snow and we get a special weather warning, they, they screenshot that weather app and they fire it to me and they go like, hey, hope you're okay today. So uh, I willingly bear that here living in Vancouver and uh, not being in Alberta. Thank you, Jesus. Let me tell you a story. It's a once upon a time story. Once upon a time, in the middle of the first century in the Roman province of Galatia, there lived a young teenage boy who was from a wealthy family. Let's call him Young Steve. Because I got to name him. Ever since young Steve was about six years old, he had a guardian who watched over every area of his life. We're going to call his guardian Larry, because I also got to name him. Larry the guardian was employed by young Steve's father, who, if you're taking notes, is old Steve. That was a joke, too. The basic premise of Larry the guardian's job was that he had to make sure young Steve grew up to be the kind of man that his father would be able to trust as the heir of all that he had. 
to pass along everything he had. Everything he had earned and accomplished in his life was all going to go to young Steve. So whether Larry the Guardian was a slave or was some sort of um, hired hand, young Steve never knew. But what he did know was that Larry was always there making sure that he was going to get to school on time, do his homework, mind his manners, not stepping out of line. And when it seemed like Larry was a perpetual killjoy and perhaps a thorn in young Steve's side, he still had the reminder in the back of his mind that Larry would always be looking out for him until he reached maturity. They had a decent thing going unless young Steve stepped out of line. If young Steve stepped out of line, did something unruly or something that might embarrass or shame the family that he came from, shame his father's household, Larry the Guardian was then a quick and severe disciplinarian in his life. And in a way, young Steve was being held captive by Larry the Guardian until he came to a place of maturity in his life, which would then be marked by the receiving the full measure of blessing and authority that came from being the son of his father. That's actually what this text is about today. It's actually what this text is about. This text is building off of what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, specifically in Galatians chapter 3, where we've tried to understand how the law of Moses was put in place as a temporary measure to reveal our need for a Savior, and how that temporary measure was only until Jesus came. How Jesus came and he revealed what it was like to live as a son of God and sons of God through faith which completely changes our understanding of what it means to be his people. That's what we've been looking at, and that's how we arrive at this place in this text today. If I could say it another way, I would say this. This text is showing us that God has always had a plan of salvation. This is the promise that he made thousands of years ago, that he would save his people. And it's how he enacted this plan throughout the course of human history that we might see that we need a savior and that that savior's name is Jesus. That's what this text is about. Now, maybe more than any other text that we've looked at so far in Galatians, we need to have a set of first century glasses on to understand the context of what's happening. Because some of the things that are said here in the text would have been very obvious to anybody living in first century Galatia but maybe aren't so obvious for us. And so we need to see it in the context that it was first written. So here's the three points that are going to help us to move through the text today. If you're taking notes, here they are. The guardian of the promise. We're talking about the promise of salvation that's come to us in Christ. The guardian of the promise. The sons and daughters of the promise. And we'll talk about that. And then the oneness of the promise. The guardian, the sons and daughters, and the oneness of the promise. You okay? I'm going to go anyways. You all right? Good grief. All right, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, there really was a guardian. It's just, like I said, his name's, his name's not Larry. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the rest of the law that God gave to Moses, it was the guardian until Jesus came. We talked about this last week. The law, the temporary measure that was put in place, was never intended to save. Never. The promise of salvation had been made hundreds of years earlier. The law was simply an usher to lead us toward grace. 
Okay, the law prepares us to worship Jesus because the law was added as a temporary measure to reveal our sin and our need for a savior. Now look at something, you see this in verse 23. It says, now before faith came. Now before faith came. That sounds like a strange way, a strange phrase. It sounds weird on its own. You need to go back to verse 22 from last week. Draw that into this text today so that we understand it. So let me do that. Verse 22, this is what it says. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, here's the cold hard truth this morning, Christ City. Humanity left on its own apart from the intervening grace of God. Humanity is lost. Humanity is sinful and humanity is doomed. That's what we believe about the general human condition apart from God's intervening grace in our lives. And look, sin is not hard to understand if you have ever spent any minutes living in the world that we live in. There are virtually no worldviews and virtually no religious worldviews specifically that would try and argue for an absence of a problem in our world. Almost no one argues in that way. They think there's something fundamentally broken. Almost everybody on the planet would agree, in spite of whatever religious worldview they hold, whatever different ideologies they're from, whatever philosophy or school of philosophy they've been taught, however they've been raised, almost everybody agrees that there is a fundamental problem. What people who are not followers of Jesus would argue about, and you might not be a follower of Jesus, and we're so thankful that you'd come and you'd engage in this and hear the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to save. See, people who aren't followers of Jesus, they might argue about what the solution to the problem should look like. Some of them would argue for political utopianism. Some of them would argue for different legislations that would be put in place to make things better. Some of them would argue for some sort of transcendent idea, some sort of reincarnational thing, some sort of karmic ideal. There's a whole bunch of different views. They would argue for all of those different things. But Christians believe that the problem around us in the world, as evidenced in our relationships and in institutions of the planet that we live on, and all of the different ways that human beings interrelate with one another in the world around us, we believe that problem is actually solved through the work of Christ. That he has made a way for us to be reconciled to God and one another and to the world around us. We believe that. So for Christians, we look to the solution of the problem to the promise that God made to Abraham 4,000 years ago, to the promise that was guarded by the law for a long time, and to the promise that came to fruition when Jesus was born, when he lived, when he died, and when he rose from the dead in our place. See, God made a promise to save us. It's the very salvation the whole thing's talking about. When we talk about the promise, we're talking about the picture of salvation. That we receive something that we take hold of by faith, again, through the finished work of Jesus. That he makes a way for us to be saved. Now, our faith, our faith is our trust in the trustworthiness of God. Our faith, our trust, has an object to it. It's not something ethereal where it just sort of floats around, where we just hope good things and send good thoughts. We don't, we don't send good thoughts. Because we talk to someone. We, we have faith. There's an object to our faith. His name is Jesus. 
We put our faith in Jesus. So faith is not something that sort of exists on its own. It's placed in the object of our faith, who is Christ. So that's why Paul shifts to the shorthand now in verse 29, or pardon me, verse 23, where he says, now before faith came. Okay, it's the opposite of what some of the people in Galatia would have said. They would have said that that's not how you'd be saved. They argued for salvation by works of the law. Paul is arguing for salvation by faith in Christ. So when he says now before faith came, here's what he means. He means before Jesus came. So look back at it now, Galatians 3, 23. Now before faith came, before Jesus came, before there was an object for us to place our faith in, before Jesus came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So his point is that the law was a guardian of the promise until Jesus came and made a way for us to come to God by faith. Verse 25 says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come, and that we can come to God by placing our faith in the faithfulness of the faithful one, Jesus, we are no longer under a guardian. Like I said, there was a real guardian. His name's not Larry. It's the law of Moses. And it guards the promise until Christ, the fruition of the promise, can come. So to people in the first century province of Galatia, here's what they would have heard. They would have heard that the law was a guardian, and all of them would have gone, oh, yeah. Because there's guardians all around them in their society. It was a normal thing for every adolescent boy in an elite or wealthy family to still have a guardian that he received when he was about six years old. This is what Philip Ryken says. He said, in wealthy Greek families, children were individually raised by pedagogues. From age six until late adolescence, the child was under constant care and supervision. The pedagogue was part babysitter and part chaperone. Since he was in charge of discipline, the pedagogue was also part probation officer. Which is funny, because you've been a teenager. This is what he had in his life. So Paul is saying to them that the law was their guardian. That the law was only ever intended to be a temporary babysitter. He's comparing the law to a guardian or a pedagogue. Somebody appointed to serve as the protector of the child until they reach maturity. The false teachers talking about something else. See, just like a good pedagogue or a good guardian, the law was out of a job when God's people came to maturity in the arrival of Christ. The law was out of a job. The false teachers in Galatia were telling people that salvation was Jesus plus doing works of the law, and Paul says, hey, you're wrong. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. We've been saying that for weeks and weeks and weeks. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing, all that equals everything. That's the promise that you take hold of by faith. The point he's making is how ludicrous it sounds to be the person who's come to maturity, who has left their family of origin, who's gone off on their own in some sort of way, who no longer has the guardian following them around, checking in on them all the time, and then sitting there and going like, I wish my babysitter was here. He's saying that's how ludicrous it sounds to say that it's Jesus plus doing works of the law. He's saying that's going backwards. I don't know about you, but... 
as a man, I didn't want my manny following me around to make sure that I was behaving. I didn't want that. That's what the guardian was. How many of you had training wheels on your bike? Right? Your parents or whoever's teaching you how to ride a bike, they're going to put those training wheels on there. It's real safe. So you just ride like this all the time. Right? <laughs> just learn to ride a bike at a 45-degree angle. The training wheel's on. There comes a point where it's time to take the training wheels off. You come to maturity in your cycling abilities. Your parents take them off or whoever takes them off. And they just give you a push and hope for the best, right? It's like, it's like coming back when you're 20 years old. You've been riding a bike with no training wheels for 15 years. You come back along and you go, hey, can I, can I get my training wheels back? That's what he's saying is like if you go back to the law. He says the law was only in place like a guardian as a temporary guardian of the promise until the fruition of the promise came in Christ. As he was born, promise isn't needed. Or the, 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 the guardian of the promise isn't needed anymore. The law served a beautiful purpose in preparing us to worship Jesus. But since Jesus came and did what he did, we don't go back to the law. Okay? The law was the guardian of the promise of salvation. But listen, the law was not the promise itself. And that's where the Galatian false teachers got stuck. They wanted to continue living out of the law. That's the guardian of the promise. What about the sons and daughters of the promise? Look at this, verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Jesus has come. We put our faith in him to receive the promise. We don't need the guardian anymore. In fact, we're all adopted into God's family by faith in Jesus. We all become sons of God. Okay, sons and daughters of God. Daughters too. Paul obviously means both sons and daughters in this text, as we're going to see in a moment in Galatians 3 verse 28. But I think it's fine to keep the verse to say sons. And not sons and daughters. And here's why. The original language just says sons. And I think it's meaningful. Sonship in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. Sonship. That symbolized a certain status and right of inheritance that was not offered to daughters. And Paul says all of you, male and female, are sons of God. All of you are given that status and receive that inheritance. If he'd have said sons and daughters, you're all sons and daughters of God, it could have been misconstrued or misunderstood as having a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God who did not really receive all of the benefits and all of the inheritance that was promised to them in Christ. That's why he says sons. Okay? Paul's world, the benefit of sonship, especially adopted sonship like this, and we're going to talk about this lots next week, these benefits were unique and they were privileged and that's the kind of relationship that we've been promised in Christ. See, Paul's not down on women. He's not neglecting to include women. He's saying that we are all sons of God in the sense that we have the right to an inheritance, that we are heirs according to the promise of salvation that comes to us through Jesus. We're a child of God. Recipients of the full promise. No secondary citizens here. 
in his book, Knowing God, which is one of the greatest books ever written by J.I. Packer, not written by J.I. Packer, one of the greatest books ever written, it just happens to be written by J.I. Packer. I know I tell you that a lot of books are the greatest books, but this is one of them, okay? Take me seriously this time. It's one of the greatest books that's ever been written. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Through faith in Christ, we are all sons and daughters of the promise of salvation. Full recipients of the full inheritance. Heirs according to the promise. He's our father. Doesn't that comfort you? God's not a miser looking for ways to destroy you or make your life difficult. He's a father who willingly adopted you as his own. Who has forgiven you your sin and trespasses. And was bestowed upon you the full inheritance of the promise of salvation. He's our Father. Our Heavenly Father, He's not like your abusive dad. Our Heavenly Father is not like your negligent dad. He's not like your angry dad. He's not like your absent dad. And He's not like your dad who tried his best but just really didn't do a very good job. He's not like that. Our Heavenly Father's perfect. Our Heavenly Father is gracious and He's kind and He's loving and He's patient and He's merciful. In fact, our Heavenly Father is perfectly gracious and perfectly kind and perfectly loving and perfectly patient and perfectly merciful. And He made a promise to save you through the finished work of His Son, Jesus. And He made good on that promise to you. And He's with you right now in the midst of whatever trial you're in. Whatever difficulty you're going through, whatever abandonment you feel, he's with you. He says you're his child. He wants to bless you. He wants to be with you. And when you take hold of the promise of salvation that he promised that he promised, that he enacted, that he fulfilled, that he offers to you by faith in Christ. When you take hold of that promise, the text tells us that there's a sign that will go on reminding us of that promise. That's what it says in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You know, every time we do baptism here, we go down to Kitts Beach, we walk out into the freezing cold water, people question all the decisions that they've ever made to that point in their life. And then we put them down into the ocean and we bring them back up. Every time, that's a reminder that one day, I knew that I was accepted by the Father, that I was welcomed into the family of believers, that other people said, yes, we affirm and confirm the faith that you have in Jesus. And we welcome you into the family. Every single time there's a baptism, I remember that he's my father too. I remember that I have received the promise of salvation that was marked out in me outwardly. As baptism. Baptism is the outward visible sign of the inward invisible reality that somebody's put their faith in Jesus. That they have come and been welcomed into God's family. 
we have, it says in this text, put on Christ. We've been clothed anew in Christ. We are recipients of a new identity. We are no longer estranged from God. We are welcomed. We are no longer lost, but we are found. You are in Christ. That's what this says. Do you see that in verse 26? For in Christ. You are all sons of God through faith. In Christ, if you ever want to do something that will encourage you, probably for the rest of your life, go through the New Testament and all the letters that Paul wrote. Go in and underline or highlight every single time he says, in Christ. Every time the words in are next to the words Christ, the word Christ, in Christ. Every single time. And if you do that, it will transform your understanding of the union you have with him. What it does in your life, the identity that you have, that you've received, you're clothed anew from on high, you are in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Because, see, in Christ, you're chosen from the foundations of the earth. You're redeemed from slavery to sin, and you receive freedom in Christ. You're ransomed from the wages of sin and death, and you are given new life in Christ. You were once dead, you were once dead in your sin and trespasses, but now you've been made alive in Christ. In Christ, you who follow Jesus, in Christ, you're a new creation. In Christ, you are the beloved of the Father. You're not working your way toward being accepted by the Father. You're not advancing and trying to earn a right standing where you could maybe one day, if you tried really hard, be the beloved of the Father. You are, in your faith, in this moment, in spite of all the mess around you, you are the beloved of the Father. In Christ. In Christ, you're the child of God. You've been adopted as his own. You are eternally secure because Jesus accepts and keeps all who come to him. And I dare you to try and talk me out of that. In Christ, you're justified. In Christ, you're made clean. In Christ, you're being made whole. In Christ, you can forgive others because in Christ, you've been forgiven. In Christ, you're not alone. But you're citizens of heaven. You're citizens of this entirely new kingdom. In Christ, you're members of this entirely new eternal family. In Christ, you now look to others in the church. And you see mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in the faith. And then you can go to them and you can encourage them with the realities of who they are in Christ. And they can in turn, when you're at a low moment, come along and encourage you with who you are in Christ. This is the family that we've all been welcomed into as sons of God. See, in Christ, we are his and he is ours. By faith, inwardly. Evidence through baptism, outwardly. We're all sons of God. There's a guardian of the promise that did its job. And the guardian brought us to Jesus. The sons and daughters of the promise have found their new identity in him. And the the oneness of the promise begins to take hold. The oneness of the promise. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's the oneness of the promise. You're all one in Christ. Now what's going on here? All right. This is not a proof text for gender-neutral bathrooms, okay? It's not what this is. There's no male 
and female. I don't, I don't have a problem with gender-neutral bathrooms. I think they're fantastic. They're wonderful. They're all receptacles. They do the same thing, accomplish the same purpose. You go do whatever you want. Just don't use this as a proof text for that. It's not what this is. Okay, the point here is that we share something in Christ. And the point is, what we share in Christ is exponentially more important than what used to distinguish us or even divide us from one another. That what we share in Christ is exponentially stronger than anything that could ever come and try and divide us. We're all one in Christ. We're all united in and by and through the finished work of Jesus. In Christ, in Christ, racial barriers fall. There's neither Jew nor Greek. In Christ, cultural barriers fall. There's neither slave nor free. In Christ, social barriers fall. There is no male and female. It says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These are some of the biggest, if not the biggest, divisive issues of their day. And here's the thing with Jesus' church. What unites us together is stronger than anything that could ever divide us. In a certain sense, Paul's saying our oneness in Christ, our oneness in Christ means that you can say to somebody, you can say, hey, give me a divisive category that you think would separate us. And I will show you how the work of the gospel is stronger and sufficient to unite us. Just give me a category that you think is strong enough to divide us. And I'll show you how the gospel is at work in us and that the gospel is strong enough to unite us. Now, we've got some work to do, because that's not how things look in the church. It's true. It's true. Some of you don't feel it. It's true, but it's not always enacted. Look at the three categories. Racial barriers, cultural barriers, social barriers. You're talking about racism, and you're talking about classism, and the differences in socioeconomic status, and you're talking about gender. Boy, I bet you've never heard any of those things debated on the news. Okay, 2,000 years ago, Paul evidently was on to something. Okay, about the messiness of the world that we live in, and how the answer is Jesus Christ. Crucified dead and risen for you and your neighbor of a different socioeconomic status and your neighbor of a different skin color and ethnic background and your neighbor, you fill in the blank. What unites us is stronger than anything that could ever divide us. This is important for us, and, and please hear me. Especially if you are part of the majority culture in any church. If you're part of the majority culture in any church, hear this. Notice, though, that the aim of Paul's rhetoric is to preserve social diversity rather than to eliminate it. Peter Oakes is on to something. Let me read that sentence again. Notice, though, that the aim of Paul's rhetoric is to preserve social diversity rather than to eliminate it. It is Paul's opponents who are seeking to eliminate diversity. They want Gentiles to adopt circumcision, to Judaize, to become Jews, losing their distinction and identity. Paul wants unity between Gentiles as Gentiles and Jews as Jews all together in Christ. 
the aim of what Paul's saying is not to dissolve differences, but to preserve social diversity that God might be glorified in the midst of it. Paul's not diminishing individual identity. He is celebrating unity in diversity. And that's why it's important, especially if you are part of a majority culture in a church, to be aware of that. Yes, we're all one in faith in Jesus. Yes, we're all one in our baptism. One Lord, one spirit, one church. Ephesians 4, the whole thing. But that does not mean I stop being a white guy who was raised in the sticks in Alberta. Right? And you have to accept me in Christ. (laughs) See, in Christ, you don't get to reject me based on my family of origin. You don't get to reject me because of my socioeconomic status that I had when I was growing up. You don't get to reject me because my grandmother was born and raised on a native reserve and is native. You don't get to reject me because of the fact that I didn't grow up in the faith and did some terrible things before I turned 20, (laughs) came to Jesus. You don't get to reject me based on any of that. We're one in Christ. You're stuck with me. And I'm stuck with you. (laughs) Listen, because as a church, we have a long way to go in this. We're working. This church was planted in one of the top three most ethnically diverse cities in North America. And it was planted by a white guy who only realizes how white he is when he tries to dance, right? It was planted by his white wife, who actually is a really good dancer. And it was planted by a mostly white launch team coming out of a mostly white at the time church. A church that was entirely led by white people. Okay, that's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's okay as long as we don't assume that everybody who isn't white should just assimilate into our white culture and become just like us. Okay, the gospel's better than that. Okay, in Christ, unity is not uniformity. In Christ, unity does not equal uniformity. The gospel of Jesus does not reformat us into some sort of mindless, discultured robots with no personality, no uniqueness, no past history. The gospel is actually transcultural. Okay? It's why it's strong enough to unite people from all over the world with all types of skin colors and understandings about wealth and all sorts of different understandings about what it means to be human. The gospel actually can unite us together. It's strong enough to do that. The gospel of Jesus speaks to all people from all times and all cultures. And the gospel of Jesus does not just bridge ethnic diversities or racial divides. Cultural barriers fall too. So the socioeconomic status of your life, whether you're a slave or you're free, whether you own a home or you rent, whether you are a gazillionaire or you're on income assistance living in subsidized housing, you're one in Christ. And that means for most of us in Vancouver, most of you in Vancouver, those of you who are wealthier, that means you need to pay attention that you don't turn your nose up at somebody because they're not dressed like you. Those of you who are on the other end of that spectrum, who do not have as much money, you can't hate rich people. You cannot share the gospel with somebody you hate. In Christ, that barrier falls. 
The painful part is it might take the rest of our lives to figure it out. On the timeline of eternity, this is the only part that will be difficult for the gospel to bridge all of these divides. It's the only place that it'll be difficult right now. When Christ returns and he makes all things new, he writes all wrongs. From that point forward, there's no sin. Which means the diversities will be celebrated, not looked at as obstacles. And that's how we're supposed to live now, here in the moment. He says in this text that there's no male or female. Do you know how radical that was 2,000 years ago? I mean, there's places in the world right now where you can go and argue that point that would still live with a very chauvinistic view of women being property. So that's what it was 2,000 years ago. Yeah, it doesn't mean that there's no gender distinctions, like we become Christians and sort of just stop being gendered. Okay, that's not, that's not true. We celebrate masculinity, femininity. We celebrate male and female. means that these distinctions, though, are not the defining features of how we relate to each other. It means that nobody is left outside of the promise because of their chromosomes. It means that nobody can be discriminated against because of their race or their job or their gender. We're one in Christ. This is a statement that was attributed to Socrates. I'm not sure if he made it. I never met him. But it's a well-known statement of thanksgiving that he had. And I'm not sure who he was giving thanks to, but this is what it says. Socrates taught that we should be thankful, men should be thankful, first, that I was born a human being and not a brute animal. Oh, okay, understand. Next, that I was born a man and not a woman. And a Greek, not a barbarian. So to the Greeks, there was the Greeks and then everybody else. So the Jews were barbarians. Everybody else is barbarian. You go, that's not very enlightened, Socrates. You, you perhaps need a lesson. Okay. There were three blessings that were supposed to be recited daily by Jewish males who were under the teaching of a guy named Rabbi Judah. Here's what they would say. Praised are you, O Lord, who has not made me a Gentile. Praised are you, O Lord, who did not make me a fool or a handicapped person. That's what it's saying. Praised are you, O Lord, who did not make me a woman. Yo, oh, this guy spent his whole life studying the Old Testament, and that's what he came out with? Rabbi Judah, we need to help you read the Bible. See, the gospel transcends all of that. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. It doesn't matter if you were placed there as a child and just lived a charmed life in the faith, and died at a ripe old age faithful to Jesus, or if you're the person who the last time you got out of prison from multiple life sentences for murder, and the only time you got out of prison is when they were taking you to the cemetery. It doesn't matter if you clawed your way to the foot of the cross in some sort of horrific circumstances, or that your parents deposited you at the foot of the cross to be discipled in the faith your whole life. It doesn't matter. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no Jew or Gentile, slave free, male or female. All are one in Christ. has huge implications in our faith. Let me tell you about William Carey. William Carey was a missionary from England who went to India in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and he was trying to share the faith with people there. 
And what would happen is people from India would come to know Jesus. And they would be going through a discipleship process to prepare to get baptized. Right? The outward sign that we've received Christ. As they were preparing to get baptized, William Carey refused to baptize them unless they rejected the caste system in India. He said, if you will not reject the caste system that you've been a part of your whole life, I won't baptize you. Because the caste system is horribly antithetical to the gospel. It writes a person's status in life into the family that they were born into. And what it does is it separates human beings into artificial strata that's actually connected to different levels of suffering. So when you see somebody in a low caste in India suffering and it appears that no one cares, it's because in their mentality they did something to end up in that caste and they deserve every bit of suffering that they're going through. So there's no justice. William Carey knew the book of Galatians. William Carey knew the gospel of Jesus. And he knew that there is no hierarchical tier within the Christian family. That we are all one in Christ. And he modeled that for us. And I think he's a wonderful example that we can emulate of what it means to go into a cross-cultural setting with the transcultural gospel and help people to see the truth of the promise that comes to us in Christ and the power of it. The oneness of the promises for all who come to Jesus. Now look at verse 29. If you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. If you're in Christ, you are part of the family of the promise. The promise that God made to Abraham 4,000 years ago that through his offspring, he would bless the world. If you are in Christ, you are heirs to that eternal promise that you will forever belong to the family of God. You are on the receiving end of an unimaginably good inheritance that you did nothing to earn or to receive. You did nothing to deserve. (laughs) This is the gospel. Tells you who you are as it relates to God. See, you're his child. He's your father. Tells you who you are as it relates to Jesus' church. Here's what it tells you. It tells you you belong. I would love it if Christ City was just a little messier. I'd love it if it was a little messier. I'd love it if today after the gathering, somebody walks up to somebody else and you say, you know what? seems like you've walked past me uh, for 74 weeks in a row without even acknowledging my presence. And I'm just trying to figure out why. Like, I think that would be great. <laughs> you say, you have to accept me, I'm in Christ. Now, you don't have to be best friends. Because maybe, maybe you don't like that person. But you need to love them. And you'll grow to like them. You're going to spend eternity together. You should start now. (laughs) I'd love it if we got a little bit messed up and dealt with some of the junk that floats around and doesn't get named. Okay? That's what I would love. I'd love it if we owned some of this stuff. Like one one of our elders in training, this wonderful Chinese brother who's become a friend, and he started talking to me about white culture. And I was like, white culture? Huh. Didn't know that existed. Like an idiot. (laughs) Right? Oh, white culture. I didn't think we had culture. Thought we were vanilla is what I thought we were, but apparently that is a culture and we were trying to assimilate you into it. Sorry about that. Thank you for highlighting that issue for me. Can we do a better job of it in the future? 
Like, I'd like it if we did that a little bit. I wasn't talking. That's not, I don't know where I am now. But I'll tell you this. In Christ, you're a child of God. In Christ, you're united to God's people. And in Christ, you found home. You might feel disenfranchised with the world you live in, and you might feel lost, but there is a place to come home to. That's yours in Christ. Would you stand with me as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.